Well, good morning and welcome to the Christian Life Center. We are so glad that you're joining us today. For those of you that maybe I haven't had the opportunity of meeting, my name is Ben. I get the privilege of being able to work here on staff. I'm excited because I get to kind of wrap up our parables series today. But before we get to that, there was one other quick announcement that I just wanted to kind of add to the list, and that is to just let you know that a few small group leaders or community group leaders are going to be out in the lobby immediately following the service. If you are uh, interested in being part of a small group and you don't have one or a community group, you're interested in kind of what they, they look like, I would encourage you to stop by and speak to any of those small group leaders, those community group leaders that are out in the lobby after this service. So if you are online, I'll say that if you're interested in getting connected, you can go ahead and email molly at clcfamily.church. So that was one announcement that I just wanted to throw out there. But yeah, like I said, pretty excited to be able to kind of wrap up our parables series. This is a ser mini series that we've kind of been on for the last eight weeks or so. As most of you are probably aware, or if this is your first time to let you be aware, we have been working through the Gospel of Luke for over a year now. We have been kind of going verse by verse, looking at it, and then we're kind of breaking it into sub-series to help us kind of remember what these sub-series are about, and just honestly to make sure that we're not lost after over a year of sermons on the book of Luke. So we're pretty excited to wrap up the series, but I do have to tell you that the next series is going to be a lot of fun too, okay? So that's going to start next week, and here's what the title of that next series is going to be. Are you ready? You, you do not sound enthusiastic at all right now. Online, maybe you do. Parking lot, not sure. But inside, they're like, go ahead. So the next series that we're going to do is called Parables, kind of. <laughs> that is literally what we are going to call the next series because as we jump in next week, specifically, we'll be kind of wrapping up uh, chapter 16 of Luke, uh, which is another parable. So we could kind of put it in either one. We could put it in the parable series, or we thought we would just kind of start a new mini-series where it's parables, kind of, because after that parable, there's a few teachings that Jesus gives that are a little bit more random. It's more like there's, there's thoughts that Luke is kind of working through, and so that's why we're calling the series Parables, kind of, because it's kind of a parable, but it's kind of not at the same time. Um, but we're excited for that, and then in December, we will start our Christmas series that we're calling Christmas Checklist, um, and that'll start that first week of December. But I'm excited to share with you today five verses that are kind of tucked in between these two parables that we find in Luke chapter 16. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to, uh, at some point, maybe this week, to listen to last week, because really this message is connected to last week, just like next week's message will be connected to this week. So what Luke and what Jesus is doing is as he's telling these parables, he's kind of connecting dots so that the people uh, that he's speaking to can understand, and he's using these stories, these illustrations, to make the point that he's trying to teach and to communicate. And, and if you've been with us, I, I've read this a few times, but I'll continue to read it. But basically, I want to give you a little bit of background on what a parable was. A parable was basically a small story that had large implications, right? Jesus often taught in parables. Many times he would, he would speak about them. And what was so amazing is that he would just come up with them, and they would be these perfect illustrations to what he was talking about. And so he often taught in them. Uh, it was a, a parable was a made-up story or a hypothetical situation. In some of Jesus's parables, Jesus would say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like, and obviously this helps us understand how God views the world and how we should live in light of it. Sometimes Jesus would explain that parable to his disciples or to the crowds, and other times he wouldn't explain anything and he would just simply keep going, that the parable was supposed to almost speak for itself. And through parables, Jesus offers to us who we are, who God is, and to draw some conclusions about ourselves, the kingdom of God, and about God himself. And in most parables, there is usually a God figure or somebody that represents God. But what is kind of interesting is that last week, as we looked at the parable of the shrewd manager, there wasn't actually, commentaries kind of argue that there wasn't actually a God-like figure in that. And they've got various reasons. I don't want to kind of try and re-preach that message. But, but it's interesting that, that that parable was more of a parable. Jesus was kind of getting to the point of what he was trying to teach his disciples, and then he moves on. And it's interesting, these parables in Luke 16, the two main ones, kind of the, the bookends of this, are really teachings about money. 
Now, I don't know what that does for you as you're sitting there, as you're listening, as you're in your car, you're online, wherever you're at. For some, that gets really, really uncomfortable. And I just want to be upfront and let you know that that is where we're going today. We are going to be talking about finances. We're going to be talking about money, wealth, and possessions. But the reason why we're talking about that is to get to something that I think is much more important. The reason why Jesus brings that up with the Pharisees now is because he's trying to drive at something that's so much more important for them to understand and to realize than just this conversation about wealth and money and possessions. So we're going to get to that. I hope that I I kind of communicate this well. I'll be honest, as I looked at this text for the first time, there's these five verses that kind of bring up three what look like really random thoughts. It's almost like Jesus has this ADD moment, of which I have ADD, but I was even having trouble tracking like these three thoughts of going, okay, Jesus is talking about money, then he talks about the law and the prophets, and then he talks about marriage. And if you're me, there's two heavy topics in there that you're going to talk about. So you're either talking about money, talking about marriage, either one of those are pretty heavy. And so I'm going, okay, well, what is this? And I really hope to be able to communicate what I feel like God has been teaching and showing and revealing to me in Scripture. And as we go through the parables, kind of we said a a few different things along the way. Uh, We want to ask ourselves and try and answer a few of these questions. Like, what does this parable teach about God and his kingdom? See, as Jesus started his ministry, as he showed up on this planet, the kingdom of God had come. He had established his kingdom by showing up as a baby. And now that he's here, he's beginning to teach and to preach and to talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So what does this parable teach about the kingdom of God? What question does this parable answer? What were the original hearers to learn in this? That's a a very important question. But then also, what action does Jesus expect for me or from us? Those are really critical things to look at as we talk about parables, because it wasn't just a story for 2,000 years ago. It's a story that impacts us to this day, and we want to be able to get to that. So let me just go ahead and open with uh, another quick word of prayer just so that God would move and work. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you for each and every single person that is joining us today, Lord, for those that are online that, um, who knows, maybe are are listening to this later on in the week, maybe those that are in the parking lot, Lord, for those that are in person, Lord, for all of our audience, for, for whatever this church looks like, Lord God, I pray that you would just speak to us. Lord, I pray that it would not be my words that are heard, but it would be yours, and that you would just communicate to us where that we would understand who our true master is. Lord, that we would desire to have you above all things rather than anything else. So Lord, would you just have your way in this place? We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, there's these five verses kind of tucked between these two parables. One, the parable of the shrewd manager last week, and then what we'll get to next week is that this other interesting parable or this story about uh, Lazarus. And so as we get to it, I want to read to you the first five verses and then kind of go back and look at these and try and explain these and kind of expound on them as we go. And one of the things that I did that I think is important is that I added one of the verses from last week. So technically our text today is Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. But what I wanted to do was also give you 13, because I think that that really helps understand what's happening in the rest of these verses. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and here's, here's what it says. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's where it ended last week. That was where the parable and kind of the text that we looked at, it ended. And then we get into Luke 14, and this is where it starts to get a little bit more interesting. Verse 14 says this. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. 
So with that, we're going to go ahead and pray because I think the text kind of speaks for itself. We're going to let you go a little... I'm just kidding. That's not true. If you've heard me communicate, you know that I've still got like 50 minutes at least. I'm just kidding. I'm trying to do better. Um, not really. Um, so here we go. We're jumping into this. And again, for me, as I read this, it kind of seems like Jesus is all over the place. It seems like he's kind of going from one thing, talking about money, to then talking about the law and the prophets, and then talking about divorce. But all of this actually connects together to the point that Jesus is trying to make to these Pharisees. And so he, to understand what is happening, we, we do need to kind of just review again a little bit of what happened last week. So last week, Jesus is talking specifically to the disciples. So verse 1 of chapter 16 says that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. The disciples are there. But on some level, the Pharisees are in with, within earshot, or the Pharisees are there as well. There's, there's some connection to where the Pharisees hear the teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples, and the disciples are, are listening and kind of paying attention, but the Pharisees are definitely not, right? They are definitely not listening to this. And what we do is, what, when we look at that parable, what we need to understand that the parable of the shrewd manager is not about this shrewdness or this stealing and kind of the, the theft that happens there. Because there's this con confusing verse where the, the master of this manager kind of applauds him for the way that he handles things. And you're kind of going, what? How does that make sense? And let me just read this to you. I want to read it so that I get it word for word the way that I said. I said, the point of the shrewd manager is that though what the manager did was not right, he was commended because he was wise enough to use things to gain other ends. The stealing wasn't to be commended, but he put things in a perspective as a method and not an ends. Money or the oil or the wheat that we specifically looked at, um, the money, the oil, or the wheat was uh, that was owed to the master was used in a way of gaining favor for the manager who had lost his job so this manager loses the ability to manage the master fires him but the manager before he goes he does stuff with the debt that is incurred to the master that he goes okay i'm going to reduce your debt to all these debtors and in doing so he gains a ton of favor because as he leaves from the master's house now he has the favor of these men and so here's what the point is. Jesus was using this parable to explain how the kingdom of God operates and how we as believers should view money and possessions. That we should view them as tools and as means, not as the end-all, be-all. That is what that parable is teaching, is that Jesus is going, hey, it, it's not about means. It's, money isn't your God. Money isn't where you should put your trust and your hope and your faith you should use it as a tool to bring others to know the Lord as Savior. That's what ultimately he was talking about. He's going, you should use it as a means to an end, not the end itself. And this is the main problem that the, the Pharisees have. This is what's challenging for them because 14, again, let me read it, says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees are sitting in the back or, I don't know, standing in the front. I, wherever they are, they hear Jesus start speaking and they're going, that's not right. That's not accurate at all. Like, that's some really poor and bad advice. They start to mock, to scorn, to ridicule, to, to really, <laughs> the word here that is used, that, that word is to kind of put their, their noses up, right? Like, it, it's derived from two different words. Let me read it. Uh, it says, the Greek word here, it comes from two other Greek words, meaning out of and to blow the nose. So properly, it means to turn the nose out or up, to sneer, to scoff. Figuratively, it means to scornfully reject, to blow someone off like expelling mucus out of the nose. That's an interesting way of putting it, right? Like, as these... Pharisees hear the teaching of Jesus instead of receiving it and being open to what Jesus is talking about they're going and literally blowing Jesus off wanting nothing to do with him so they are literally in a place where they are they're showing contempt they're showing their pride they're showing that ultimately they are rejecting Jesus and the authority that he walks in they're missing him and who he is Ultimately, this pride is something that we've seen time and time again. 
And here it shows itself one more time. Part of the reason that they were mocking him was because of this thought process that the Pharisees and the religious elite had during that time. Part of what they thought was that if someone had wealth and great possessions, children, flocks, finances, they had all of these things, then what they thought was that was actually God's blessing and favor showed to them because they were doing so well at following the law. That is really what they were thinking. The Pharisees considered riches as a measure of God's blessing for faithfully following the law. They thought that somebody, if they had a lot of possessions, they had a lot of sons specifically, if they had uh, cattle and sheep and donkey, they had all of these means, then God was truly blessing them with all of this wealth because obviously they must be following the law well. But then the reverse of that, it was something that they also believed, that if someone didn't have wealth, if they didn't have sons, if they didn't have flocks or sheep or all of these things, then clearly they must not be so good at following the law because God blesses those who follow the law well. So if they have, it's because they're good. If they don't have, it's because they're bad. That was a thought process that had invaded that time. And for us, it might be easy for us to kind of go, well, that's silly, because basically what they're saying is that, well, if I'm rich, Jesus and God just likes me more. For us, that's a little bit like, okay, that's not true. But imagine all of the religious leaders are doing this in a time where most people were skilled in laborers, not so much as Pharisees. They weren't religious leaders. They didn't have the Torah readily available to them that they would read it the way that we have the word of God. And so this, this thought process invades the people as well. Even to the point where in one of the gospels, Jesus is, is with his disciples and they come across this blind person and the disciples ask Jesus, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus goes, Neither. It's so that God could show his goodness and his glory. His glory could be revealed. So here's this thought process that says, if they have, it's because they're really good. And if they don't have, it's because they're really actually bad. But that doesn't make sense. That's not true. As they, the Pharisees are doing this, they are absolutely missing the fact that as they look through and read through the Old Testament, that that wasn't the way that God worked. That, that there was righteous people who had very little. And there was unrighteous people that had a lot. For us, kind of to put it in a modern-day example, it would be like saying that God favors drug, uh, we'll say drug dealers and cartels because they have an absorbent amount of wealth. Right? Like, they follow the laws of the land so well that God blesses them. I don't think anybody would make that argument. Nobody would think that because the way and the means by which they acquire their wealth, we know isn't something that God would want to honor and glorify. That it's not the, the way that God would have a disciple or a believer go, but that's exactly what these disciples are doing here. Or excuse me, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're going, well, if you have, it's because you've done really well. And look at me. I've got all of this wealth I'm a lover of wealth. I've got all of these possessions. I've got all of this stuff. Man, God really loves me. I'm really highly favored because look at all that. It's proof that God loves me and cares for me. They are absolutely missing what Jesus is talking about. So, of course, they scoff. Of course, they, they sneer. They think that this is ridiculous because who is Jesus? This person who appears to have no wealth, he's going to actually speak and talk about wealth, this man has no idea what he's talking about. And then look at the people that Jesus has surrounded himself with, right? Here's this ragtag group of guys. These people are going to educate me about wealth and God's favor? No, I don't think so. Again, ultimately what we're seeing is that the Pharisees were stuck in pride that they would not and could not see the fact that Jesus had come, that the Messiah had come, and he was talking about a different way the way that the kingdom of God operated. So what does Jesus do? Jesus calls them out. So verse 15 says this. He says, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. And just to pause right there, that scripture in and of itself, man, for us as we read that today, that in itself could be its own message. The fact that God knows your heart. The fact that God knows my heart. Man, 
If you start thinking about all the things that you've done in your life, the, the wrong that you know you've walked into or the, the wrong that you should have done, man, that can be really scary. At least for me, it's really scary when I start to think of how righteous I am on my own because I'm not. God knows and sees our hearts. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that God sees their hearts. And then it says this, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is talking about what the kingdom values. The kingdom does not value what the Pharisees and these religious elite have kind of set up in this system or this organization where they make a ton of money and then they say it's because of God's favor and blessing that they have all that money and anybody else that doesn't have that money, well, it's because you didn't do so well. God is saying it's an abomination. See, they wanted to show off their righteousness. They wanted to kind of advertise how good they were and Jesus sees that and goes, it doesn't matter how good you advertise, your heart is what God sees. And it's an abomination. This is how the kingdom of God operates. It's opposite of the way the world works. Their love of money has put them out of touch with, God's, with Christ's message. So Jesus directly mentions where they stand before God. And so they're still laughing, sneering, and Jesus calls them out specifically. And he says it's an abomination before God. That word abomination in the Greek, uh, it's derived from two other words that mean to reek with stench, properly what emits a foul odor and hence is disgustingly abhorrent. So I want you to think about, just for a few moments, what was the worst smell you can remember? What was the worst thing that you could, just comes to mind, maybe there's an example, maybe there's not. Fortunately for you, I have an example. So I want you to think of this as an example, and this is what I want you to do to give you kind of the end of this illustration before it even starts, is that this is exactly how God views what is happening in this place. Jesus teaches his disciples, hey, use money as a tool. Use your possessions and what you own as a tool to find favor and blessing, blessing what God actually cares for, which is people. Use that as a tool. The Pharisees are going, nah, that's, that's not good. And so Jesus, the way that the kingdom of God looks at this, that they look at it with such a, a discomfort that there is such a stench and such a foul part of this it wants nothing to do with. I, do, I have a picture. I, I have two dogs at my house. I'm going to show you a picture of them. Um, they're two boxers because boxers are awesome. If we have that picture, we can throw it up there. These are my two dogs. Uh, the one on the right, he's Bruno. He's older. He's about five. He's going to turn six. The one on the left is Bailey, um, and she is crazy, okay? So if you ever see her around, she probably wants nothing to do with you because she's in her own world. She's a little bit crazy. But those are my two dogs, um, and I'm going to tell you a story about Bruno. So the one on the right, you can see him. He's the one in this picture who is not impressed with me taking a picture at all. Um, he's just like, do what you got to do. Here we go. He probably knew that I was going to use him as an example. But back when Bruno was a puppy, probably, I don't know, I'm going to guess and say he was probably about 10 months old. Uh, maybe he was close to a year. Um, we had crate trained him that he was pretty good. So kind of to sleep through the night and we had kept that crate kind of in our living room so that it was close to the door as we were kind of learning and teaching him how to, to like use the restroom outside and make sure that he does everything that he needs to do. Well, this one random morning, I think it was like a Saturday morning or something, um, it's like 6 a.m. and I hear him feverishly whining and like crying. And I'm going, okay, something's going on. He was just young enough to, that I was going, he knows not to cry while he's in the crate, so I don't think that's it. So there's something going on. So I run downstairs, and I assume that what's happening is that he just has to go to the bathroom, which is right. So he is eager to get out of the crate. So I run down. I'm like half-dressed, just getting out of bed. Like, and I let the dog out, like bring him outside. He does his thing. It's pretty quick and apparent to, to realize that this man has, has got some trouble. He's not a man. He's a dog. You know what I mean. This, this dog has got trouble, right? Like he has... He, he's like gone to the bathroom a couple different times and we're not talking number one, okay? So I don't want to be too graphic here, but we're not talking number one, all right? He has gone to the bathroom a couple different times and I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of odd. And so as he kind of finishes up, I, I like walk back inside and that's when this, the worst smelling stench that I have ever smelled smacked me in the face as soon as I came inside. 
Like, it was so bad that I don't even know how to communicate to you what had happened, okay? Like, it was so bad, I don't know how I missed it going downstairs the first time, but when I came back in the house, it was like somebody punched me in the nose, and it was the worst smell that I have ever heard, like, ever smelled. And so I, I like, walk in the house, and I'm going, oh my goodness, that's terrible. So I, like, run back outside to, to get a breath of air, because the second that I smelled that, I also started to, like, dry heave, and, like, felt like I was going to throw up. It was like, <laughs> And it was like, okay, that's not good. So I like ran back outside of the house and Bruno is like watching me like, I know, it's not good. I know, that's why I was whining. And like, and so I like, I ran back outside and I'm like, okay, I'm just being, being silly, okay? It is not that bad. I, I need to go in there, I need to take care of things. Like I need to get this crate out because clearly he's had an accident inside of this crate. Long story short, it was more than an accident. I don't know what happened, but he exploded in his crate. I, I, like, I was cleaning things off of things that I was like, how in the world did that even get there? And so I, like, I'm standing outside, I'm like, okay, I need to go in. So I go in, and again, I am hit in the face with this stench that was just bleh. And I'm like, okay, I, I need to get over this. This is ridiculous. I don't know why I'm starting to dry heave. I'm, it's not like I'm going to throw up. So I start to like move the crate and it, it gets more intense where I start to dry heave even more. And I am trying to control this, but I have no control of what is happening. So I, I like run back outside and I'm going, okay, this is absurd. I, I don't know what to do. Um, and then I thought to myself, I need to get the stench out of my house, and the way to do that is through candles, right? Okay? Now, my wife, I should tell you, loves candles, okay? Personally, I don't understand it, but she loves candles. That's great. The other thing, while I'm, while I'm on the platform and I'm here, honey, I love you, but pillows, all right? I don't know how many pillows you actually need on a couch. At some point, the pillows take up the butt space that's supposed to be there, and pillows, I don't understand. Like, anyway... Sorry, that was just a bonus. But candles and pillows, like my wife loves so much that I thought maybe we need to have like a, an intervention ministry at the church for this, but I'm not sure who should go, like her or me. Like, I'm not sure because she loves them so much and I don't understand them. So, so I'm like, candles, I need to grab candles. My wife, who loves candles, now all of a sudden, as I enter back in, I start to dry heave, like feel like I'm gonna actually vomit. I cannot find a single candle anywhere. Of all the times that my wife has got like six different candles burning, now all of a sudden I can't find a single one that I need. So I am like frantically looking around. I've got the matches. I like start lighting matches and blowing it out so that hopefully the smoke would overtake the smell of the stench. And so that's happening, but it's really not working. And so I run back outside. And I'm, at this point, I'm a little bit embarrassed. Like, I'm going, okay, Ben, the reality is, is that one day you will have children. Children, go to the restroom. You will need to clean that. You need to be a man, step up, and get in there and clean this dog stuff off of everything. And so that's what I told myself as I go inside, and I'm going, all right, kids sometimes have smelly bath and like diapers. I need to do this. And again, I start dry heaving, start losing it. So I run outside a third time. Now my wife hears this commotion. I'm moving the crate. I'm frantically looking for candles. I'm burning matches and like just blowing them out and setting them down. Don't worry, there's no fire involved here, all right? Like she hears all of this. And on top of all that, she hears like every five seconds. So she comes down as I am outside, and I don't even know why, but I was like a good 20 feet from the door. The door is sitting wide open, the dog's in the yard doing his, his thing again, and I am like 20 feet shirtless, like just pacing back and forth, and my wife comes out and she's like, what is going on? She sees the matches everywhere, she sees the crate halfway moved, and I'm like, we can't have children! I just can't deal with this, I don't know what's going on, the dog's blowing up, I just can't, the smell is so bad, and she is like, at six in the morning, she's going, what? Now my wife is an ICU nurse, right? Like, she's an intensive care nurse. So, <laughs> when I get sick, there's very little sympathy, unless I'm dying, there's very little sympathy. So my wife, in all of her years of smelling things that I don't think normal human beings should smell, she goes, 
just breathe through your mouth. <laughs> and so I go, oh. So my wife goes in and she starts to like clean it up. She calls the dog back in. Well, I apparently made the dog even more frantic in my franticness. And she's like, just breathe through your mouth. Well, I tried it and I dry heaved again, but whatever. She had mastered it. So the, I say all that to just simply say that it was such a bad smell that that is something that happened five years ago that I still to this day, when I don't feel well, I smell that in my mind. Right? It was such a terrible, foul odor that I wanted nothing to do with. And that is the picture that Jesus is saying this attitude that the Pharisees have, this, this thought of, of not wanting to give, that is the same exact way that, that God views what the Pharisees are doing. That God views what they consider to be something that is exalted, God considers to be an abomination, that he has no desire to be around. That is a stench to him that he wants nothing to do with. I say all that, kind of a funny illustration, that we would just understand that is the severity in which the language that, that is being used, that Jesus is using, is that harsh and that direct and that firm. That is an abomination. He doesn't want anything to do with that. And here, here what we see is Jesus uses such direct words. He is very clear. He does not mince words. He says what he says. And I, I really wish that I could understand the tone in which Jesus says it. Like, I really wish I could see that because on some level, the fact that Jesus is bringing it up to the Pharisees again, Jesus is showing that he loves, that he cares for them, the, the error of their ways he wants to see corrected so that they can come to a saving knowledge of who Christ is. Yet at the same time, this is not the first time that Jesus is kind of going, going uh, you know, a He's opposing, or I should say the, the Pharisees are opposing Jesus. We've seen it time and time again. And in the last three or four chapters, we see in Luke 13, 14, 15, and 16, that Jesus is kind of opposing the religious elite, the Pharisees here, that they have got it wrong, that they're missing the point. In 13, they get upset that Jesus is healing on a Sabbath, and Jesus is compassionate, saying you should choose people over policy. In 14, Jesus is challenging them to give up their power and their influence to be humble, and they're kind of going, mm, hard pass, don't want anything to do with that. 15, Jesus is, is hanging with sinners and tax collectors, and they're going, ew, why would you do that? No, that's not how you do it. And then in 16, what we saw last week, Jesus is saying, use money as a means to help others. They're going, hard pass, not interested. So I'm so curious in which the tone in which Jesus spoke. I think that it was probably clear and direct, and it was probably firm, but it was also wrapped in this compassion because what he wanted for them was to see the error of their ways. He wanted them to, to understand that God wanted them to use their wealth, their means, their possessions, to bring glory and honor to God, to use them as tools for what he wanted to do. See, the reality is, is that the Pharisees used people to gain wealth and things. They had this system in place where they could benefit from people who wanted to come to, to the temple and, and they wanted to worship God, but they benefited from it by selling sacrifices. We see that it, when Jesus ultimately makes it to the temple, he clears out in anger, he clears out the money exchangers and the, the, the market that had been set up in this temple and, and he drives them out. So they had set up this system where they could take advantage of people for the sake of wealth. And I think the reality is that we as people will either be mastered by our love for others and give of what we owe or, or give of what we owe to meet others' needs or we will be mastered by our love of things and in the end we will use people to gain them. The Pharisees didn't care about people at all. They cared about their position. They cared about their influence. They cared about their wealth. They cared about their possessions. They didn't care about people at all. And it's important as, as you look at these these uh, passages, like as you look at finances specifically, Jesus talks about finances and wealth kind of more than any other topic. Well, I want to say that he, like topical wise, if you're just doing a word search, that one comes up more than anything. 
But if you understand the context of that, what I would argue is that actually Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and salvation probably more than anything else. But he uses money and finances as a way of getting to that point. So in all of those references, there's some, like, uh, there's so many different things. I think it's like 11 out of the 39 parables have reference to money. But again, I don't think money is the real point there. The, the point is Jesus is trying to emphasize about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. When, when you look at the, the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Jesus talks so much about finances that it's, I think it's like one in every 10 verses on average comes back to finances. But again, it's not about the finances. What it's about is Jesus is asking who is the master of your life? What are you devoted to? Because as he just said in 16, Luke 16, 13, you cannot serve both God and money. That's ultimately what he's getting to. And, and there's this, this other passage that is in Matthew chapter 6 that I just want to kind of uh, talk about just a little bit. I don't want to spend a ton of, of time on this because I, I don't want to go far from Luke. I just want, to, want you to understand. But Jesus talks about finances in the, what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom of God and what it means to live here on earth. And it's life-shattering. What he teaches is contrary to what every other religious teacher taught. It's contrary to what the world operates in and exists in. Jesus is teaching a completely different thing. And he's explaining about the kingdom of God. And so the Cliff Notes version of that is in Matthew 6, and I've got this on the screen, I want you to read it. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says this. Jesus is telling people, all people, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the point that Jesus is trying to make. You cannot serve both God and money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees. He's making this point also to the disciples, and that's why he's telling them to use their finances, their wealth, their possessions to bring people to know him so that they can celebrate in eternity, in eternal dwellings. That is what he is telling them to do, but the Pharisees can't hear that. Why? Because they've been mastered by money. In Matthew 6, 24, it's the same exact verse as Luke 16, 3. It says, no one can serve two masters. For he, will either, uh, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, it's not about the money. Jesus is talking about money, but it's not about money. It's about mastery. Who has mastery over your life? You cannot serve both God and money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's telling his disciples that you need to treasure the things of the kingdom. Don't use money and look at money as the end-all, be-all. Look at it as a, as a means to accomplish and to be about serving your true Heavenly Father as master. That is ultimately what Jesus wants to do. Jesus or God wants to be your master. It's not about money, it's about devotion. God doesn't want to share who will you choose to be and to place your trust in your security. Will you choose to, to be the servant of? Who will you choose to be the servant of? Who will be the master of you? This is what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. Because they cannot fathom the idea of giving their wealth away or their possessions, it shows that they don't have wealth, but that their wealth has them. It shows that their, their wealth, it's not them having wealth, their wealth owns them. Their wealth has mastery over them. I wrote this down. I, I said that... The test of our devotion to God is our willingness to put him and others first in the area of our money and possessions. This is the true test. Why did Jesus talk about finances so much? Because it gets our attention. Because I think really, what's the big deal about money? Really money, stuff, things, is the true or the main competition for our heart. It is the main competition for our heart for our attention, for our drive, for what we do. Money and stuff, wealth, is the main competition for our hearts. He uses money as an illustration because it gets our attention. 
Many of us don't struggle with, who should I serve? Like, we don't wake up in the morning and go, hmm, should I serve Jesus or make it blatantly obvious and serve Satan? Most of us don't do that. But what many of us do without realizing it is that we say we choose to serve Jesus, but then we go about the means of making money our master. It's ironic that on money it says, in God we trust, when many of us place our trust and our hope and our security in money. But Jesus is getting at the very heart of wealth and possessions of going, don't, don't have that be the, the means. Don't, like, don't, don't have that be the end. Let it be the means for how you find favor and you live generously among God's people. That you advance the kingdom of God by being generous in all that you do. So going back to the text, then in, in 16 verses, uh, 16 and 17, where it looks like Jesus kind of changes things, it says this, it says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for the kingdom of heaven to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Even though it looks like Jesus is kind of changing kind of the topic, he's not. What, what is actually happening is that the Pharisees were playing this game where they were trying to advertise and show their righteousness and their goodness, but the very thing that they were kind of pointing to, saying that they did so well at, which was the law, is where they actually were being condemned. The law wasn't there showing and revealing how good they were. The law was actually revealing how bad they were, that they couldn't live up to this unrealistic expectation. And what Jesus is doing is that he's kind of explaining that he is the fulfillment of the law. As you read through the Old Testament, as you read kind of the, the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, what you see is that even in the Old Testament, God's love for his people is there. It's exemplified in the scripture. It's exemplified what Jesus is ultimately driving towards is that the law was a way that we could actually show love to God and to others. And as Jesus shows up, he was the fulfillment of that law. He kind of everything that the law required, Jesus lived and did. And so therefore, as Jesus showed up, he's going, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And it's through me, through the relationship that you would have with me, that you can be in right standing. And so that's where he brings us up, that they had convinced men of their fake righteousness, but they couldn't pretend before God that saw and judged their motives. The very word that God spoke in the Old Testament was love, but the law showed a way that we would be able to love and approach God and one another. That's what the law was. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And this, where it says in, and, uh, in 17, where it says, but it's easier for heaven and earth, or excuse me, in 16, um, and uh, 16, let me just say, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. And this is a positive kind of uh, a forceful advancement. It, the, the wording there says or means laying hold of something with a positive aggressiveness, meaning that as you saw the crowds that were surrounding Jesus, they saw what was happening and they wanted to be a part of it because it was different than anything that they had heard. It wasn't about religious law and all the laws on top of the laws on top of the laws that the Pharisees had done, but this was something that was liberating, that Jesus was saying, all eventually will be welcome. And it was something that they aggressively wanted. This is something that they wanted to be a part of, something that they wanted to lay hold of. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. And when it says that it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void, what that's in reference to is kind of the actual writing of the law, where those little dots in Hebrew text made a significant impact on the words that were used. So Jesus is saying it would be a lot easier for heaven and earth to just disappear than for that law that's been written down. It would be a lot easier for everything to disappear than for that law to just simply go away. But I am the fulfillment of that law. And then Jesus continues, and he uses an example of divorce. And divorce would have been a hot topic for them to discuss. There was many different thoughts on divorce, and what we see from the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, basically what was required if somebody was, was interested in getting a divorce, one, a woman wasn't allowed to initiate divorce. That just didn't happen. In that culture, women were not valued. It was a, it was a male-driven society. So if a man chose, he could simply divorce his wife if, let me read the, the, the verse, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, 
if, when she, uh, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs from it, they would be divorced. That's all that the law spoke about divorce. So by the time of Jesus, this is hundreds of years later, there was all of these different thoughts and philosophies about divorce and what was required to actually meet the fulfillment of when she finds no favor in his eyes because he, he has found some indecency in her. See, they kind of ignored that second part and just said, well, she finds no favor in my eyes, so I can just divorce her. There was a couple commentaries that I read, and here what Jesus does, let me, let me read the verse, and then we'll get into the commentaries. 16.18, and again, says this. It says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. See, they didn't mind divorce, but adultery they knew was wrong. That was something that was bad that they shouldn't do. So Jesus is here kind of giving a heavier uh, interpretation than what they have ever heard. So that for them, this would have been shocking. This would have been like, ooh, no, that's bad. But Jesus is going, hey, let me show you where you've missed it in the law. You just kind of do this. You do your own thing. You divorce for really no reason. That's not the heart and the purpose of why that law was created. The two commentaries that I read were this. One, uh, the new manners and customs of Bible times. Uh, it notes that marriage could and did break up, and it was possible for a man to divorce his wife if he could find something indecent about her. Jewish lawyers interpret this phrase in different ways. In the time of Jesus, some believed it referred to adultery or sexual misconduct. Then some others believed that the phrase could even include the spoiling of a dinner. I don't think I would be married um, if that was the grounds for divorce. I've definitely spoiled dinner many times. Anyway, I could tell you a story about putting salt in pasta. and I, we shouldn't, I don't have time to go there. Anyway, it says, then some others believer, uh, believers, um, some believe the phrase could even um, be the spoiling of dinner. In society of that time, it was possible for a man simply to tell a woman that she was divorced. But Jews would require to give them a bill of divorce that con uh, contradicted the original marriage contract, and women were not allowed to initiate. And then the, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. It says, in spite of justifying themselves, the Pharisees were still not living according to the law. Jesus uses divorce as an example. Some Pharisees took a loose view of divorce. It was acknowledged that a man should not commit adultery. But if a man wanted another woman... Many of the Pharisees condoned divorcing his present wife for no good reason and remarrying the desired woman. In this way, they thought adultery didn't take place. However, as Jesus pointed out, this is a perfect example of justifying themselves in the eyes of men, but not being justified before God. The religious leaders were not actually living according to the law. What God was revealing is that he created marriage to be sacred, a sacred permanent union and partnership between a husband and wife. And they were cheapening and devaluing that by going, eh, she displeases me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get another one. And so Jesus adds on a heavy dose of reality saying, if you divorce a woman, like, let me just read it so I get it right. If you divorce, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. See, they thought that they were good. They thought that they were safe in that, but really they were missing it. And they were using the law to justify the fact that they were so good and they were so blessed and honored because they had all of this wealth. And, and Jesus is going, you miss it. In fact, what you value and what you honor, God opposes is a stench in his nostrils that he wants nothing to do with. And so that, that kind of brings us to the end of that text for this week. And it, it kind of, for us, it, it begs the question of, well, what do we do with that? Like, how do we respond to a message like this? What is the application? And I think for us, as we read this, we really have to ask ourselves, who has mastery in our life? Do we say that God has mastery, but yet, when we look at our motives, when we look at what we do, we're actually driving towards possessions and wealth and things and stuff. You cannot serve both God and money. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So how do you respond in that? And going back to kind of this, uh, this text in Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus kind of continues, and if you want to read all of Matthew 6, I'll say it's, it's verses um, 6, 19 through 
34, you can read through that, but in, in 6.33, I really feel like Jesus kind of gives us the solution of what we should do if we find ourselves in a place where we're living and operating in a place of greed. I heard one pastor say it like this. There's, if there's a consumption assumption, meaning that everything that you make is for you to benefit from, then ultimately that's greed. And we don't actually see it in our lives. Greed is something that can be hard to identify because we can justify it and, and give all types of excuses as to why that doesn't happen. But ultimately, this is greed in the Pharisee's life. And we as believers need to make sure that we do everything that we can to not live in a place of greed, but that we use what God has given us to show love and to care, to give, to give and to be generous with so that others may come to know Christ. And so in Matthew 6, 33, it says this, it kind of gets to the end and, and there's more to it. Again, this is not a message on finances in the way that like you should give to the church, but I do have an application that I think will challenge you and that I hope that you will take up. Matthew 6, 33 says this, and this is the solution for what should we do to protect ourselves? What do we do to test if we are a person that has this consumption assumption? This says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things. In that passage, he talks about food, he talks about clothing, he talks about worrying. All of these things will be added unto you. So what, what should we do? We should seek first the kingdom of God and all do. I really think the key to breaking greed is to give. The key to breaking uh, this greed in your life is to give away what you have. And, and this is kind of where it could transition into a message about, about giving the 10%. It could be uh, about tithe, but I don't want to go into all of that. Here's what I would challenge you kind of in clothing, closing. A as an action step, here's what I would ask you to do. I would ask that you would take some time to evaluate and to think about something that you could give money to. It doesn't have to be here. If you want to do the church, fine, that's great. But just if you, if you are not in the practice of doing this, giving is what breaks greed. So what I would challenge you to do is to give. And when you do, look at what shows up. Reflect on what happens in your heart and in your mind. What questions do you ask yourself? What excuses do you give to yourself? What conversations do you prepare to have with your husband or your wife, your family, your spouse? Because I think when you're about to give, and I would say choose a percentage of your paycheck, whatever that is, not like a half percent, but something that would actually, you would feel, something that you would notice, not just something that you're like, oh, I'm just going to do that, but give and see what your heart tells you. I think that is the way that you actually test to see where your master is. If you have such a hard time, man, that communicates something. If you are, if you are able to, to give freely and there's no issue there, that communicates something as well. That would be my challenge to you, that you would choose a percentage, whatever that is, two, five, eight, ten, whatever you want to do. I, I heard a pastor, and uh, Andy Stanley is his name, from, from Georgia. Got, he's got some great teachings. He uses this kind of expression that you should give save and live like so give 10 percent to god to others to to save 10 percent and then to live off the 80 percent if that's something you can use great you can check out his website he's got a ton of different thoughts on on finances but really as you do this if you choose to do this if you choose to take this action step it will reveal where your heart is for the pharisees they couldn't understand but their attitude and their actions revealed that their master was money it was not Jesus. It was not. Even though they were the religious folk, they could care less about God and the things of God. Master, their master was money. And so uh, I want to challenge you with that. If you have questions, I would love to hear them during overtime. You can submit them on the internet. You can kind of text them to us, um, email them to us. We would love to do that. But today, what I am so thankful for is that instead of instead of having a model like the Pharisees, we have a model of Jesus who, was, who gave of himself, who showed and modeled selflessness by dying on a cross for us. And as we partake in communion, we get the opportunity to, to be reminded of what he's done and how he sacrificed his life for us. And so I'm going to invite Gary to come on up and, and to share with us for that, whether you're in inside, you're in the parking lot, or you're online. We want to partake of communion together.
Hey, it's great to be here with you and to have an opportunity to, um, to come to the table together. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens when we come to the table is that we, we actually get an opportunity to, to empty ourselves so that God can actually fill us. And so um, I hope you have one of these um, little communion cups and um, uh, would invite you to, um, you know, to, I, I always peel back the top part first so that I can get to the next part. So if you want to do that right now, feel free to do that. I think one of the things we have to understand is that um, our lives were meant to be a fragrant offering to God. Um, you know, Ben was talking about the stench, but the reality is that we were called to be a fragrant offering to God, one where we can experience God's love and goodness and God's continued guidance with us. And so today, as we have the opportunity to take communion, um, what we're really saying is we're saying that we realize that we are people that stand in need of a Savior. Um, we can't do this by ourselves, but, but we need God's grace and God's help to help us in that. And then in the midst of that, we're also living into the story, the story of who Jesus is, um, who Jesus has called us to be, what it means to follow him. So, so remember with me this story, because it's in remembering this story that we remember who God is, but it's also how we remember who we're called to be. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, um, took and when he gave thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'd invite you to take the bread together, and let's eat this together. And then in the same way, after they had taken the bread and eaten it, he also took the cup. And he said, this is the cup, which is the new covenant, which is poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then he invited us also to take and to drink of that. Let's drink together. Let's pray. So, holy God, we are grateful um, and we realize, Jesus, that as we take you in, we ask you to, to change us from the inside out, that we might be your people, that we might know your love, and most of all, God, that, um, that we might really experience your grace. We thank you that you are a grace-filled God who walks with us all the days of our lives, and we, um, we give you praise and thanks for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Adopting the unwanted 
I know that a message like today's kind of lands in a hundred different places. And I just challenge and encourage you, if you have any questions, um, please feel free to contact us. We'd love to answer any questions that you might have. And really, I feel like my question or my thought for you is, are, are you doing what Jesus was talking to the disciples about, using money and finances and, and things and stuff as, as a means to kind of use uh, for the kingdom and the glory of God? Or are you like the Pharisees where it's about what you can get and what you can spend and what you can do? So the challenge for you is to understand that it's not about money, it's about mastery. And that's really what Jesus was getting at. So if you have any questions, please let us know. We'd love to be able to answer them or to speak to you or connect with you in any way. And I'm just gonna say a quick prayer and then we will do, be dismissed from here. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. I pray that you would just be with us as we go from this time and place. Lord, I pray that we, we, we would use what you have given us as a resource, Lord God, to, to draw men and women unto you, that we could advance your kingdom with everything that you've given us. Lord, please be with us this day as we go from this time and we go from this place. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everyone. We hope to see you next week. And if you have questions, you can submit them for Tuesday's Overtime. Thanks. The just